when we're talking about a super story or transmedia, we're just simply talking about how to express an IP across multiple mediums and multiple platforms in a way where it all works together to create a different business model for creators and a different experience for the audience. It's taking not a product-centric approach to entertainment, but it's taking a brand-centric approach to entertainment. are listening to the Act One Podcast. I'm your host, James Duke. If you enjoy what you hear, do us a favor and subscribe to our podcast, leave a review, and share it with your friends and neighbors and countrymen. My guest today is author and media expert, Houston Howard. Houston is an entrepreneur, creator, producer, professor, author, speaker, and thought leader in the space of multi-platform transmediated entertainment, or what he simply calls Superstory. Driven by a passion and desire to build generational IP that leverages both narrative velocity and brand scalability, Houston has created Superstory IP and multi-platform strategy for the likes of Fox, CBS, Mattel, Disney Imagineering, Electronic Arts, Wizards of the Coast, West Coast Customs, Slinky, and more. Houston has published three books focused on process of creating transmediated entertainment, including his most recent and most successful, You're Gonna Need a Bigger Story, available on Amazon. As an industry mentor for the Producers Guild of America, an advisory board member of the Beyond Games Conference, a contributor to the Television Academy of Arts and Sciences, and special advisor to the U.S.-China Film Summit, Houston is a wonderful guy who I know you will learn a lot from today. I hope you enjoy. Houston, thanks so much for joining me, man. Super excited to be here, Jimmy. And you're coming to me live from your new home in Texas, right? You are one of the recent um, people who have moved out of California to the great state of Texas. Is that right? Yes, yeah, smells like freedom and brisket here. It's amazing. Uh, <laughs> no, we uh, yeah we we uh, we transitioned uh, you know during COVID. We have a six year old. We were uh, we just we just had a, a, another one. So my wife was pregnant, and uh, we it just the COVID um, COVID changed the city, and yeah. uh, and it changed the city for the worse. But I think it changed the industry for the better because it sort of pushed everything uh, to where you can do so much stuff remote. And you know, thankfully, uh, you have a place like Austin that has a really good intersection of of entrepreneurship ministry and a great film and entertainment community and um you know so it just made a it checked a lot of different boxes in a lot of different ways and so uh so we That's made great. the move just uh, just a couple months ago yep so let's talk a little bit about your just give people a little bit about your background so you you were out here for 14 years now now you know now you're working in a at a Texas you're originally though from Kentucky is that right Kentucky the great state yeah. of Kentucky the commonwealth of Kentucky uh grew up in Kentucky um Graduated college in West Virginia, uh, went to law school in Virginia, and um, uh, practiced law there in Virginia, uh, focused on film and entertainment litigation. And so I consider myself at this point a recovering lawyer, almost completely recovered, uh, decided sort of early 
early into that, that I wanted to be on the other side of the transaction in the entertainment space. And so uh, much to my mother-in-law's chagrin, he um, decided not to practice and moved to, to, to LA with sort of no contacts, no backing, no, didn't go to film school, anything like that. And uh, just tried to kind of figure it out once I, once I got out here. So, um, so it's very much sort of like a, an odd path into the industry, but, uh, but that was my path. And how did you, how did you become this guy who's become the transmedia guy? Like, was this something that you kind of just uh, fell into in, in, in this kind of journey? Or is this something that you um, actively pursued? This was something that you thought, man, this is the, this is the approach I I've always wanted to take with, with filmmaking. And, and, and so now I'm going to tell everybody else, um, the kind of the, the secrets of it and kind of help them understand it? Or is it something that just you, you're just out there trying to figure things out as a filmmaker and a storyteller. And, and then you kind of stumbled into this a little bit. You know, it was a little bit both. I mean, I'm, I'm a child of like the, 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 the eighties and the nineties. And so, you know, I grew up, uh, you know, raised on big IP, multi-platform IP. Uh, I, you know, big fan of, you know, things, He-Man and uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and, you know, Batman and and uh, the um, uh, Star Wars and Lord of the Rings. And and I loved all that stuff. And they they all existed on, on, on multiple platforms. And so I was just, you know, that was my taste in entertainment. And and that hasn't really changed. Uh, you know, I've nuanced it a little bit, but but, you know, I'm still a fan of those things. And so, you know, as a as as an adult, you know, I'm a fan, still a fan of Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, Game of Thrones. I, I like I like big IP. I like multi-platform IP. And so, you know, ultimately I think what creators do is, is ultimately they, they want to make the things that they like. And that's usually sort of your first instinct as a musician, you want to you know start playing the music that you're a fan of and learn the songs that you love. And so I was always sort of intrigued by that. I was a, a you know, heavy creative in high school, heavy creative writer, uh, wrote a lot of poetry, played a lot of tabletop role-playing games. So not like video role-playing games, but like dice and pencils, uh, type of role-playing games like Dungeons and Dragons, but never actually Dungeons and Dragons. I, I wasn't a fan of that game, but uh, I spent thousands of hours playing with 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 my friends on, and tabletop role-playing games. Attribute ninety percent of my storytelling ability to tabletop role-playing games, which is a tremendous tool to uh, to learn how to tell a story. And uh, then when I got into college. I uh, wrote heavily for the stage. Wrote uh, you know a couple uh, a couple plays in college, which were really cool. And then, uh, but also invented board games. It was a weird hobby I had. I just went like uh, making games and licensing them off to manufacturers. And you know, and and you know, I, I leaned into a lot of different things. When I got into law school, um, I had a lot of friends who went to the film school at the same university. And uh, that got me into starting to write for the screen. And I started to write and produce short films while I was in law school with my buddies in film school. And so by the time I got out to LA, I had, you know, uh, I had dabbled in a lot of different forms of, 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 you know, uh, of entertainment. I, you know, while I was in law school, I also had the, you know, early like internet radio show before they had really podcasts, sort of like a, a internet radio show that was a lot of fun. And so I always sort of dabbled. 
Um, so when I got into LA, I just wanted to write and produce movies. That's it. And so, uh, I started hooking up with people, uh, who wanted to do the same, but they had a variety of talents. And so I, you know, one of my, one of my buddies, uh, uh, was going to act in this thing project I was putting together, but he also had 20 years in the music industry as a songwriter and a producer. And this other guy was going to, going to be my editor. Uh, but he had a technology and comic book background. Another guy had a, a, a business and marketing background. Uh, this other person was, was savvy in live events. And, and I said, Hey, you know what? let's not waste all those talents. Let's figure out how to leverage them all together in some crazy thing. And we tried it and it was wildly difficult and not very successful, but it, it never made sense to me not to try to do that. And so I went on about a two year research project early, early into my, you know, my LA tenure, just trying to really figure out and study using my lawyer superpower of like forensic auditing and trying to like, look at things like Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings and you know what Marvel was doing, and 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 you know uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and all these things. I started breaking them down. Like, what are the creative decisions that they made that allowed what they do to work so well? What 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 are the the non successful projects that that I would see, and like, why didn't they work very well? And and I started to see patterns. I started to see, oh, okay, if you if you if you make this, uh, you know, all the people that made this one decision that all worked out for them. All these people that didn't make that decision, it didn't work out for them. Therefore, I will make that decision every time, right? Like, uh, and so I just started to form a rubric uh, of, you know, this is how you develop multi-platform IP. And that's something that I couldn't find anywhere. I, you know, I was self-taught in film and television, I went and bought every Michael Weesey book on the, you know, uh, on the market. And I, I, you know, I read as many things. I went to as many conferences and, and, Actually, the very first event I ever went to in L.A. was an Act One event uh, at the Directors Guild. And I went there and was just, you know, so impressed and enamored with with this subset of the industry, which was, you know, the you know Christian creators. And I will never forget it was the writer, um, a writer of Deja Vu and also the writer of one of the uh, the Hellraiser movies that, that was there. And I mean, it was really super interesting to see how they were navigating the industry and all that. So I just kind of like I tried to give myself my own master's degree self-taught, but I never found anything in the multi-platform space. And so I, I talked to one of the richest men in LA at, a, at some event. And this guy was a real estate guy. And, and I just asked him like that. Yeah. So what, what do you, you know, if you're trying to break in an industry that, that you don't have the, the official credentials for, uh, what would, adv- what advice would you give? And he said, uh, he said, write a book. He said, the best thing you can do is write a book because whenever you write a book, people presume you're an expert. And he said, they see your name on a book and there's something about seeing your name on a book uh, that just just conveys expertise. He said, that should be your business card. So find something that you have an instinct about, that you have an insight about, you know, obviously you don't, you don't want to, you know, BS it, actually figure something out, write a book about it, and then use that as your business card. He said, and in America, no one ever throws away a book, no matter how irrelevant or ugly the cover is like you don't we don't throw away books right uh he said they'll put it on their shelf and whenever if they ever need the thing that you're that you're talking about your name's right there on the spine and i said okay cool you know i go and i'll write a book and so i wrote about this this process this rubric of how to shepherd an idea into a multi-platform world and um and I was going to self-publish, but I sent it to Michael Weesey because I read all the Michael Weesey books and they ended up publishing it uh and that 
launched me into this space in, in a major way uh, because there was just there was a devoid of content in the market for that. So uh, so that's sort of how I got to where I am. And that book um, is was that you're going to need a bigger story? Is that, what you, so that, is that your first book? The, the, my first book was actually Make Your Story Really Stinking Big. Make your uh, story. That was the, so you have, you've written two books? Written is that two right? books, right? Written two so books. Make your, make, make your story really stinking big. And then the second one is you're going to need a You're going to need a bigger story. story. Got it. And so so I, I pushed that out, uh, Make Your Story Really Stinking Big. It did really well. Um, two weeks after it hit the market, I got a call from uh, Dave Voss, the senior VP of product and design at Mattel. And he said, hey, Houston, um, uh, I, I read your book. Uh, we'd love for you to come in and, and talk to us about, you know, this process you're talking about, which is something I never considered. I always just wanted to like have this process for me to create my own stuff. But, but, you know, when Mattel wants you to come in to Mattel, you come into Mattel. And so I went into Mattel and they were working on uh, a monster, monster high, and that's a $500 million a year brand for them. And they, you know, they said, uh, uh, you know, we got this, we got this problem. Uh, with Monster High, and it, it, they had cartoons, they had books, they had uh, web series, they had all these things, and they said, "But you know, the, the the audience isn't migrating. There's some issues with it. Um, uh, you know, and we can't figure out why. Can you take a look?" And you know, I was able to then sort of you know diagnose, "Ooh, this is you know this is the problem here. There's a continuity problem here. Uh, this story really isn't best for this platform." And I just tried to kind of tinker in that sort of got me into, you know, once you get that sort of a gig, uh, then you're able to kind of spin that into some other things. And so I've actively been, you know, for the past decade, been, uh, you know, working with studios and networks and uh, uh, people in the music industry, people in the video game industry, uh, uh, film and television, uh, board games, everything in between. Um, and, uh, and then also, you know, working with independent creators, novelists, things like that, while developing my own original content uh, simultaneously. So, um, but then, but then a couple of years ago, then decided to to publish my second book. You know, because once you're in the trenches for a while, you learn new things and you see, oh, well, right. you know, actually, like there's some nuances there that I didn't see first. And so then I published. You're going to need a bigger story, uh, which was sort of the updated uh, version of that first one. So, got it. Um, so that's where we are today. Why don't we go ahead and just def- you know define terms for people who haven't sure. read your books and haven't heard you speak before. I know there's a lot of people because you, you've been so gracious and you've come in uh, on a you know pretty semi-regular basis yep. and, and, and have spoken at Act One. And, and it's always one of the, always ranked as one of the most popular classes that we offer our producing uh, students and, and executive students, uh, even our writers as well. Sure. Um, but uh, uh, why don't we kind of just help people? Let's define some terms a little bit because there might still sure. be some people who are scratching their heads. So what is transmedia or what is a superstore? Yeah, so so transmedia is sort of this funky word that um, that the industry uses. So the Producers Guild ratified a transmedia producer credit, um, you know, uh, back in two thousand seven or something like that. So so they use that term transmedia, which is is sort of this clunky word uh, that I don't particularly love because it just doesn't have any people don't have connotation to it. Um, but but that's sort of the industry term. I call it a superstore. I feel like it's a little bit more plain language. Um, but but ultimately, when we're talking about a superstore or transmedia, we're just simply talking about how to express an IP across multiple mediums and multiple platforms in a way where it all works together to create a different business model for creators and a different experience for the audience. It's, it's, it's taking not a product centric 
approach to entertainment, but it's taking a brand centric po- uh, approach to entertainment uh, so that you're looking at every story you have and thinking what's sort of the bigger vision of it and how can I conceive of it uh, in a different way? I mean, you know, we've been trained so much in entertainment to be so myopic about, you know, uh, we got to focus on, on that one thing. And uh, and I feel like that that uh, that myopic vision keeps things from scaling. Uh, and especially in today's market is more important than ever. But 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 ultimately what we're talking about is how do we tell different new stories using every tool that we have in the toolbox, uh, every medium, every platform in a way where it all works together. And so uh, so a lot of people mistake it for a very similar term, multimedia. And multimedia is that, you know, traditional 80s, 90s franchise where you take, you know, take a movie and you and you or a book and you just adapt that story across platform. It's the same. It's the book that is the uh, that that's the movie and that movie becomes the video game and the video game becomes the and it's all the same story across channels. And so when you use the same story in multiple mediums, that's just your traditional multimedia franchise. When we say when we nuance it and say transmedia, we're using multiple mediums. In, in 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 a similar way, except now we're never telling the same story twice. Uh, now the the story in the book spins off or leads into the story that's in the movie that then spins off to the story that's in the video game that then culminates into the graphic novel and all those things work together to create a greater whole. And so, uh, which is, it's much more difficult to be able to pull that off. Um, and, but in today's market, you're seeing just uh, the audiences are now wildly preferring new stuff as opposed to that repurposed story. And so uh, whereas that, that traditional franchise worked really well for a long time, now you're just seeing the shift. And so now there's more of a need for this transmediated content. And you and your first book came out when? When did your first book come out? Oh, gosh, uh, that was probably back in 2000. 14 2012 something like that it was yeah. uh yeah I mean, was, you 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 were talking about this before before people were doing it and now it seems like everyone is doing it so it yeah. really seems like you you were really in on the 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 idea really early on because i i can't turn i can't turn anything on nowadays without Sit, you know, there's so much world building going on. Sure, I can't, I can't turn anything on to find out. Wait, I got to watch what now? I got to read what now? I got to listen to what podcast sure. in order to catch up sure. with what's happening? Yeah, you know, there's there's so many different um, outlets for for story and for content, and um, it's really interesting. And yeah, it's it, exciting. But but you're right. It was it, I was definitely forward thinking, and there was a lot of people talking about it. Uh, you know, there, there were some, you know, a lot of academics talking about it, a guy named Henry Jenkins, uh, uh, a guy named Jeff Gomez, those are the heavyweights in that space. Um, and uh, but the problem is a lot of it was rooted in academia. And it was it was, you know, a lot of like super philosophical high end stuff, which I'm a, like a nerd about that stuff. I like all that academic stuff. But at the end of the day, as a practitioner, uh, you're like, OK, so what do I do? You know, how do I use this? How do I leverage this tool? And uh, it's, you know, like my, you know, my grandma used to, uh, you know, I would go over to her house and, and and I remember there was a Bible, this big, like fancy looking Bible on like the coffee table on a doily with a like a glass dome thing over it. And that's like 
a Bible like you just you never use. It's just like a decorative Bible. And that always like bugged me. I'm like, why wouldn't you want to use the Bible? And uh, and so uh, I felt like that was sort of how transmedia was, the how how the, the academics were talking about it back then, the where it was like in, on a doily under a glass bowl. And it was fancy to look at, but but to try to create it was it was it was a bridge too far. And so that's where I feel like I found my lane in that conversation of saying, okay, cool, like there's the academic side, which is awesome. But then let's let's start putting a roadmap, a practical roadmap out for creators uh, to follow. And now, but but you're right, I was. I would talk to people in the industry, which, you know, everybody in the industry, as you know, has been doing everything the same way for a hundred years. And it, you know, it was very frustrating. They acted like I was from Mars and uh, they were like, Oh, Houston, <laughs> that's great. But you know, it's not practical. And I, you know, I, I'll never forget it. I, I got a meeting with one of my, one of my top five producers of all time. And, and, and he's a friend to act one. And he, uh, and I'm actually, I actually, uh, got the meeting with him when I was at an act one event, I saw him. I was like, dude, I'd love to you know, hook up with you. And he was gracious enough to give me the meeting, which is amazing. And, and I, and I got in there and I was talking to him about a project talked to him about all this stuff. And, and, and he always just, he had this confused look on his face and he's a traditional film guy. And, and he's like, Houston, listen, you just got to think a lot smaller. He said, that's what you need to do. He's like, you're, you know, uh, he says, you're thinking, you're thinking it's just way too, way too big. You gotta, you gotta, you know, and, and, and I felt deflated and I, I understood sort of the heart behind it. What he was saying, he was like, you know, don't, you're, uh, don't, don't try to eat the whole elephant in one bite. Like, you know, let's figure out sort of a practical way for it. But, but like the, it was, it was a bit deflating because you know he wanted me to shrink my vision, and um, and that's something that I'm like, man, like I just, I'm just a big vision guy, you know, I'm yeah. like a blue sky Pixar type of a guy when I'm thinking about this stuff, and uh, but but I felt like I was beating my head against the wall taking these traditional film and television meetings in Hollywood until we started to see the shift when streaming started to come in, in into the conversation when yeah. the platform started booming, when the social platform started to come into the mix and we started seeing the democratization of technology. We started seeing the commoditization, the oversaturation of, of content. And then when that started to happen, all those same people that were like, Houston, you're kind of crazy. You're like, you know, you're coming in like a crazy Pentecostal preacher, you know, <laughs> talking about this thing from, you know, from the future. Now they're coming to me. You're like, dude, you were right. Uh, now, what do I, you know, how do I, how do I handle this? I had a Fox executive. I saw him at a, at an event and, and we, I pitched him a project a couple of years before and, and he sort of laughed. He's like, Houston, that'll never happen. This is not going to, you're not going to see this model sort of take hold in Hollywood. Saw him two years later at an event. He had a few drinks at that point and he came up to me and like shook me, grabbed me by my shoulders and shook me. He said, you were right the entire time. And, um, you know, which is good validation didn't help, you know, my bank account at that point, but, but it was like, you know, uh, <laughs> but it, but it was, but, but now it, it, especially with COVID, uh, you know, it's even, it's even transitioned things even more. And so, you know, I just, you know, I'm thankful that the Lord kind of had me in the right place, the right time with that right message. Uh, yeah. and so now it's kind of, you know, sitting squarely into where we are today. You, there's a, there, I think there might've been a mindset at one point that you can, ex, you could exploit, um, you could exploit a story or, you know, for our purposes, we'll just call it an IP, Sure. You could exploit an IP 
um, to a point. Yeah. And then, and then you move away and you go come up with some, some other idea. Um, and I think it's completely changed now. It's, you can not only go off and create a new IP, but you can go back to other IPs and continue to exploit them by just looking at it through the perspective of a different character. Like you said, not telling the same story. Now I'm going to tell a different story in that same setting, that same geographical setting, that same time period with the same aesthetic. Um, but it's going to be from a different character's perspective, or it's going to be from, um, a, a previous timeline, a prequel, a, 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 a sequel or whatever. And, and, and now it's like all these infinite ways you can exploit an IP and you kind of have the birth of, of a world of a universe. Sure, and sure. I think, a, a, a an example that we can kind of look at and exploit and kind of dissect are the ones that I don't, I wouldn't say they were the, they were the first, but they seem to have been the ones to really grab this thing by the throat and really kind of go after it. Cause I think they were uniquely placed positioned in the marketplace for it was the, or as the walking dead people. Sure. So you, uh, and, and I think it's interesting because the walking dead probably started off very differently than where it is now. And that it was, you had a film guy, Frank Darabont, who decided to adapt yep. a comic book series into a uh, traditional TV show and uh, AMC was the basic cable was the HBO of basic cable. They were the prestige channel at that time, yep. or the, at least they were right in the middle of that. Sure. And so in the middle of mad men and uh, I think breaking bad was on at the yep. time. I could be wrong, but so right in the middle of their, you know, prestige time, they're going to do a zombie show. Yeah. So it was a little like, Oh, that's kind of interesting, but it's Frank Darabont, right? A traditional yeah. kind of film guy. And and, you know, obviously there was a falling out with Darabont and thing. He, he went his way, went his own separate way from them. And they went through several um, uh, showrunners, but they eventually landed on, I think his, I think his name is Gimple. I think it's Scott yeah. Gimple. Yeah, it's and, Gimple. And now he's head of the, he, his title is like head of the Walking Dead universe. Like he's in yeah. charge of, he, he, he found a position bigger than a showrunner. Like, yes. <laughs> like, yeah. And it was kind of invented. So they already had the comic books and they went, wait a second. We, we were able to exploit the comic books for a TV show. What if we, um, what if we exploited it into new worlds, new stories that we could tell in, um, uh, uh, in video games. Yeah. And then they were like, wait, what if we could exploit it in, um, another TV series? What if we could exploit it in another movie? I mean, in a film, what if we could exploit? And so now they they're expanding this universe and telling all these other stories. And it grew out of that traditional mindset. And that's sure. uh, You know, I I guess my question to you is, is that show? And then, of course, the marbles and things like that. It makes sense when you describe Superstory. When you think about it in, in, in those terms, but what yeah. about, but what about, um, what about just a, you know, a small coming of age drama or like, in other words, does this work for every story? Like, can you, can you, can you look at every story through this lens or 
are there only some stories that you can um are there only some stories that you can that are super stories i think you know and i get this question a lot and i have have never found the story that can't be extended in some way uh, I've, I've i've yet to find that unicorn of, of looking at someone say yep that's it like can't do anything with that. I've, I've never found that. And uh, every story, I think, can be extended uh, in, in, a, in a way that, that benefits the project. Uh, you know, because when you look at The Walking Dead, Walking Dead is a great example. You know, they, they've had they've had big things like the spinoff series that limit, uh, you know, the, the, the limited miniseries uh, of the, the world beyond. They've had mobile games. They've had console games. Uh, they've had book series. And so, you know, if you watch The Walking Dead, they have a whole book series that just follows the people in Woodbury. And so, the, you know, where the governor was. And so you don't follow Rick and the gang. It's just let's just learn about Woodbury. And then if you had been reading the books when they debuted the governor in the show, now you've got a whole different perspective on the governor. But so they did a lot of big stuff. And now they're, they're spinning off into Rick Grimes feature films, another, you know, more spinoff shows, Fear the Walking Dead, uh, a Daryl and Carol spinoff. Uh, but, they, you know, one of the most interesting emotional things that they did in, in the transmedia space was uh was if you watch the if you watch the pilot of the walking dead and uh th- there's there's the very first zombie the very first walker you ever see in the walking dead it w- is this half zombie uh and and uh, the 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 fan base the fandom calls it bicycle girl because it, it's the first one that rick grimes sees and it makes him fall off his bicycle right and, and then they, they, they dubbed her uh, uh, bicycle girl and it's half of a zombie that's crawling across this field. And, uh, and, you know, Rick Grimes sort of, you know, uh, scurries away, but he comes back at the very end of the pilot and he goes back and finds that same half of a zombie. And, you know, she had made it like 50 yards across this field by that point. But this time he like, he had his hat, had his gun. He was, you know, he had sort of come to terms with everything and he walked up to, to the zombie and, and, and he, but instead of just blowing its brains out, he bit bent down in front of it and and look looked the zombie in its eyes and said i'm sorry this happened to you and then shot it right but when he had that line that actually hooked me with the series because i'm like okay that's this interesting emotional hook that felt different than the other zombie stuff and what he did is he recognized that zombie as a person that zombie used to be somebody and so what what amc did is they went and um they uh, produced a um, a web series called Torn Apart. That was the origin story of who that zombie was, and and uh, oh, and it was wow. it was super interesting because what you find out is because Rick Grimes validated that zombie as a person, and then you say, oh, then that poses a question: who what who if she's a if, if she was a person who was she? Well, what you see is then you see this web series of a mom who has two kids during the zombie apocalypse. Now, when you watch The Walking Dead, you never actually see the zombie apocalypse happen. It's like Rick Grimes is in a coma while it all goes down. He wakes up and it's already done. So uh, so you never actually see it go down. In that web series, you actually see it in, you know, uh, happening. And you have a you have this woman who is is trying to protect her two kids and and her husband isn't home from work and she doesn't know what to do and 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 eventually and, and she finally hears uh a, somebody in a helicopter saying if you're still alive 
get to the green concession stand at the park at the baseball field. And there's going to be somebody that can take you to safety. And so she finally just says, screw it. Let's let's, you know, we're going to go. And she takes her kids and she tries to get to that green concession stand. And, you know, it ends up where, um, uh, she jumps in a car. She tries to drive the car. There's a zombie in the car that bites her in the arm. And uh, and so we all know from zombie lore, like you get bitten, you're you know you're going to turn into a zombie. And she, there's something happened earlier in, in 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 the story where she knows that that's what happens as well. And so she she eventually they 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 make a run for it without the car. And ultimately, she sees that they're not going to make it. And so she know, knowing that she's going to die anyway, she gives herself up to a group of zombies so that her kids can go and get to that green concession stand. And the zombies swarm her, literally tear her apart, turn her into a half of a zombie. And then, and you see the last beat of that web series is her as a half of a zombie. And she flips over and she starts crawling. And that's where we meet her in the pilot. But then when you go back and rewatch the pilot, you realize, oh, she's crawling to that green concession stand because that's where her kids went. Wow. And, and it was like, it's so heavy. And it like, I'm like, Oh wow. That's so amazing. And, and you know who, you know who the showrunner or the, the, the creator of that web series was uh, Scott Gimple uh, where like he, you know, he, he, the first thing that he directed for the walking dead was that web series that got him a foot into the, and then you so obviously graduated. Um, but that was such an interesting emotional backstory that, that, you know, we look at sort of the big stuff that the walking dead does, but some of the small stuff that how they've extended that story is great too. And so people say, well, you know, uh, does, does every story need that? Like, well, why wouldn't you want to do that with every story? Like, that's like a, is if it's good, if it's, if you can tell a quality story, you're not pushing out crap. If it's good, then, you know, then why wouldn't you want to take that opportunity? Because here's the shift of the mindset, Jimmy, is I'm a, I'm a firm belief that if you approach building an entertainment brand the way an entrepreneur uh, approaches a consumer brand, you now build it differently. And here's my question of like, should I transmediate something? My question is always it always is, uh, uh, well, do the fans want it? Like, you know, what, like, would the fans love it? And typically, if you have fans, just us as fans, like we want more story, like Game of Thrones fans want more Game of Thrones and uh, Marvel fans want more, more Marvel, uh, you know, uh, Drake fans want more Drake music. We just love this stuff. We want more of the things that we love. And so, so usually when people, when filmmakers, especially filmmakers who get super snooty about this, uh, where they'll, they'll say, you know what, this is just a one-off project and I'm just going to go kind of turn my attention elsewhere. The mindset they have is not thinking about their fans. It, it's thinking about what they want to do creatively, right? But a, an entrepreneur, if if they see a line of people that they're outside their coffee shop who want coffee, they don't say, you know what? I'm just going to close down. Like, uh, I, I'm just going to close this business and go do something else. No, you, you serve those fans because it doesn't make sense not to. And I think that's the big shift with, with a transmedia or superstory mindset. It becomes fan centric and an audience centric and i think one of the the highest honors you can ever have as a creator is for people to say jimmy i love the story that you told and i want more uh please give me more and i'm willing to pay for more i'm willing to like you know and, and that like that is so cool and so rare and, and and so difficult to do but when you get to that point where that happens and you say you know what 
my artistic sensibilities want me to go do something else and not continue to serve that story. I feel like that's a selfish mindset. And I feel like that's not a smart business mindset. And, and the more we can kind of take that, the perspective of the audience and, and give the audience what they want. Now the audience wants something good. Like, don't get me wrong. Like you can't just push out anything you want and expect them to, they'll tell you about it. Uh, but, but that's the heart of the mindset for me is, is, is how can I, how can I give the fans more story? And, you know, as an independent creator, how do I potentially give any investor into my project a, another stream of revenue? I think the two coolest things that could ever happen to you are, are one for fans to say, I love your stuff. I want more. But really the coolest, really the coolest thing as an independent creator for, is for somebody to say, I'm going to take my hard earned money and invest it into your dreams. And for you to say, you know what, there's a way to continue to exploit this thing in a positive way that can be great for the fans and great for you. But because of my artistic sensibilities, I'm just going to cut that off right there. I feel like that's kind of like being a crappy person. And, uh, you know, you, you need to, you need to, you need to bless that person for the rest of their life for believing in you when other people didn't. And so, you know, and it doesn't have to be, you know, either, or like you can figure out ways to continue to serve an audience while you go do some other projects, right? Like find collaborators, find somebody to hand the baton off to like, you know, there's, you know, but, but you have to have that different mindset. And so, so usually when, when I hear people say, does every story need transmedia? What about my coming of age character piece? Does it really need it? it? I don't think it needs it. What you're really saying is your investors don't need more revenue and your audience doesn't meet, need more story. That's really what you're saying. And neither one of those should ever be true. Now, that being said, do do certain stories lend themselves easier to multi-platform? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, of course, which is why why you kind of get need to get in there and kind of tinker with the creative and why I, I work so much with creators and writers on the front end in, during the development process to say, you know what, if you just like sprinkle this into your story and you build this out a little bit and you, and, and, and you include this character in your, in your, in your film and it, like you can create those opportunities that, that a lot of people accidentally create, they back into it. But now that we can kind of see the, the rubric you can start to install those things that can make it easier to expand on the back end. So, so there's some, you know, it, and ultimately, you know, there's, there, there's certain characteristics that you look for, but, but ultimately that, that, that question of can everything be, be transmitted? I think there's 100% yes. It's really interesting because I, and I like your, even from the pers to look at it, even from the perspective of if I'm the creator, if I'm the, if, if I'm the creator of story and I need, and I need someone's help to, to get my story out there. And so that, that, that person who's going to help me is uh, an investor. Sure. How am I helping them? And I, and I like that. I like that mindset, which is if they're helping me accomplish my dreams and my goals, how can I help them accomplish theirs? So 100%. what's wrong with me going, okay, how can I leverage this? even more so in your favor, partner, friend, uh, investor that, so that it could benefit you. I, 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 I like that. I like that. But yeah, this goes back to having said all that, <laughs> Yeah, sure. right. It's still got to be good. Right. Yes, so, so what are some examples of super story that, I mean, we obviously we talked about the walking dead, but 
What are some examples that maybe have surprised even you that you thought, boy, that is a, that's really good super storytelling. Yeah. I mean, so, so, uh, you know, you, you look, look at some like large IP examples, really my first sort of modern example that I, that I, that I love to always go back to is the matrix and the, the matrix, the way the Wachowskis crafted the matrix was, was tremendous with, with the, you know, the uh, uh, you know, obviously the three films going to be four films now uh, with the animatrix, 20 animated short films with, you know, comic books and a uh, uh, massive multiplayer online game. And the old told different parts of the story, the PlayStation two game uh, enter the matrix. They all follow different characters, told different parts of the story. That was just so good. And, and, you know, that was sort of the early, what early two, thousands when that was released and it was really forward thinking and i remember like experiencing that thinking wow this is just an incredible thing that that uh and, and how tightly it was woven together i was just really you know impressed with that you know i am looking now of of what's going to the market uh and i don't think you can get better than the mcu what the mcu is doing not just across film but you know film and television if you want to see transmedia happen in front of your face it's uh, you know, uh, hopefully you've watched you watched WandaVision uh and 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 you know you watched you're watching The Mandalorian and Star Wars, and it's like incredible to see this happen. And you know, I, I was just so impressed with WandaVision. Uh and I was not excited about WandaVision because Wanda Maximoff. I was I was I was the same way, actually. I was like, I was I was very lukewarm on it. Yeah, uh, you know, like, the idea of it. Yeah, before yeah, I watched it, you know, and and I I thought Wanda Maximoff and Vision are like two supporting characters from the Age of Ultron, which was like the worst Avengers movie. And uh, you know, okay, she was kind of cool when she battled Thanos, but like ultimately, like I'm not excited about those characters at all going into the show. And uh, and and so a whole show built around two characters I weren't wasn't invested in. I was like, ah, and it's kind of like weird, and I just didn't get the I didn't get the posters, and like I was like, why are they look like they're in a sitcom? And uh, but holy smokes, Jimmy, like that was incredible storytelling and so experimental and so I, I, it was just bold. It was just a bold, bold unbelievable, unbelievably creative. It, they yes. they made. They made creative choices that you had never seen in that form of entertainment ever before, which was ever before. Wonderful. It was, it was, it was fantastic. And, but then you saw how it was tied in and, and, and you saw where they were planting the seeds to spin new stuff off that. And, and it, you saw this resurgence of people going back and watching the age of Ultron in, in a whole new light. And like, it, you just saw it happen. And, you know, you saw the same thing even previous to that in the Mandalorian season two, you know, I mean, spoiler alert. Uh, but like, you know, when Ahsoka Tano shows up and, and they're pulling in animated characters into live action and, and, you know, they're, they're pulling, you know, uh, characters from return of the Jedi back, Back into to, to this show, and you see, you just see how they're connecting everything, and how you know, uh, you know, they're connecting back to the Clone Wars. They're connecting back to you know, uh, Star Wars Rebels. They're connecting back to Return of the Jedi, and then you see how they're 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 planning spinoffs off from that, and then you see the 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 investor presentation that they did, where they have like nine or ten other things planned, all of which are awesome. And you see, you know, they just announced the Obi Wan Kenobi for the Kenobi show, the new cast, which is like incredible cast that they're going to have, and it's just like you're seeing this kind of play out in front of your face. And and you're like, wow, okay, they're doing it really, really, really well. And so, uh, but you know, 
so so I think the MCU Star Wars, you know, obviously I think what you're seeing in, in the Harry Potter space is, is really cool. Obviously, with you know the books adapted into the movies, but once it got over to the movies, you have you know the the Pottermore experience, ten thousand extra pages of Harry Potter material just as a digital experience. Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. Uh, they have a new uh, console video game uh, that's coming out. They have they have a mobile game that's come out. They uh, they you know it, it, it's uh, now they're talking about a, a, a potentially a cartoon and a live action show set in that universe that's the scuttlebutt around warners uh they're exploring that in a, in a major way the biggest driver of multi-platform transmediated ip or video games right and what what you're seeing with um you know whether, whether it's you know halo getting the new show for for the paramount network um uh and, and you're seeing video games really driving um the engines and 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 i don't think it's because video games People love video games even more, but video games, like the story worlds are built in a way that leans into it and, and they have these rabid fan bases. And uh, and so that, you know, that's that's going well, too. But then you look at other things, some smaller opportunities uh, that that I've always been impressed with, like, you know, something even in the music space where you have um, uh, like Dolly Parton. Right. Uh, love Dolly. She's awesome. Uh, you know, she has that iconic song, Jolene, and about a woman who is pleading with this like harlot uh, called named Jolene, please don't come and take my man. And, uh, and it's so this iconic uh, song, but then there's a Netflix series called uh, Dolly Parton heartstrings where they, they do a t- you know, an episode about every single one of Dolly Parton's songs. The very first episode is Jolene, but you get it from Jolene's perspective. And when you see the whole story play out from Jolene's perspective, you're like, wow, she wasn't after this guy at all. She wasn't trying to take anybody's man, right? It was all a big misunderstanding. It's really kind of the husband's fault. Like, you know, it was a whole, it, it, it added to the story in a really super smart, interesting way. Uh, the same with uh, a guy named uh, Kid Cudi. He's a, he's a hip hop artist. Um, uh, he has a concept album called Intergalactic and an adult animated Netflix series where every single episode um, is extending the story of every single one of his songs, right? Uh, and so you're seeing it in a couple of different ways. Even you look at something like whether you like Kanye, hate Kanye, right? The Jesus is King album. You know, he, he dropped the Jesus is King album, simultaneously released an IMAX movie that was this art film from inside his head of a, his journey to faith. Um, and then he had, you know, his Sunday service um, live events and he, and he tied them all together in a really smart way. One of my favorite examples though is... Um, is Quentin Tarantino because you get you get a lot of snooty filmmakers that that really that you know they don't call them movies they call them films and they they you know like one of those people that that you know and listen I love film I love filmmaking but soon you get you get some fancy pants filmmakers that. You know what I'm talking about, Jimmy. They reject this stuff. Or like why you like they cringe when you start talking about Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings and things like that. Uh, <laughs> but like you know, uh, the what you see with um, with Quentin Tarantino's he did Django Unchained, which was such a great film, and um, he wrote a um, sequel to Django, and it was Django slash Zorro. The official sequel to, to Django was a Django Zorro crossover. And the studio would really? make it. Yeah, really? the studio refused to make it because it was it, like, that's crazy. Like, just have it be about Django. But as you can imagine, Tarantino, he's like, no, no, no. The whole, the, what makes it cool is the Zorro aspect, right? And, and so they were at an impasse and they wouldn't make the movie. So what did he do? He went and uh, created a comic book that 
that is the official sequel, canonized, blessed by Quentin Tarantino. The official sequel to, to Django Unchained is Django slash Zorro, the comic book, right? Which is wow. super, super smart. And so, well, didn't he, he said, and then also, didn't he just release uh, his novel version of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? So it's like yep. he was able to, to even do more stuff, right? There's stuff in his yeah. novel that isn't even in it's, his own film. Isn't in the movie. Exactly. Right. And, and, and that's, and that creates the incentive for the audience to check it out. And so, and so all of a sudden, like he, he instinctively gets it. Uh, and, and now actually, now that the comics done so well, the comics been, uh, the Django slash Zorro is now being developed into a movie. Of course, uh, Christopher <laughs> Nolan, if, if you watched interstellar, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, Matthew McConaughey wasn't the first guy to go out to space to look for a new, uh, a new planet to live on. Um, Matt Damon, went first and never came back. Him and his crew, Team Zero, never came back. And you never figure out what happened to him. Christopher Nolan went and produced a digital comic book only released online called Absolute Zero that answered that question of what happened to that Team Zero and why they never returned. Uh, he didn't make any money off of it. It was, all it was, was an investment into the fan base, right? And so whether it's like, big stuff to small stuff, whether it's like a web series that gives you more information, whether you know, Overwatch is a video game where it's just a, you know, a battle royale video game, you really don't have any character development. They do all the character development in comic books and animated short films that they just include on their website and they use that to build community, right? And so you're just, you're just seeing this more and more in the marketplace, both in large aspects and also very small aspects that I think are kind of cool. Yeah, I remember the, my first time uh experiencing that and realizing okay this is an actual thing was jj abrams uh star trek yeah and they released a prequel graphic novel comic book um that set up his star trek yep so it introduced the i forget the bad guy because he was such a forgettable bad guy <laughs> right. um the one that was played yeah. by what's his name anyway um yep the Romulan or whatever he, yep. he, um, they set up his whole backstory, you know, and him, yep. his whole conflict with Spock and everything was all in graphic novel. They never, they didn't even sure. cover it in the, actually, I think it's in a, I think it's in a 32nd montage in the film, but you yeah. get all the, you know, character, character study in the comic and yeah, that, it, that, it, that you may or may not read, but you know, the vast majority of people won't, the fans will, which, by the way, uh, Jeff Talk, I borrow you borrowed that for me in comic book. And you never gave it back to me. I just want to <laughs> doubt he's listening, but if you call he him is, out, I yeah. fully remember I gave you that. Just <laughs> I love, I love that. You know, JJ Abrams is so smart. I mean, you go back. You know, my first JJ Abrams uh, transmedia experience was Lost, and you know, uh, there were listen, there were a lot of issues with Lost, right? I, I ended up lo loving it, but uh, you know, the the way they built the Dharma Initiative. Uh, mythology online was so amazing. And that, that was like, you know, early internet stuff that was going on in the early 2000s. And the way they were leveraging all of that, all of that extra mythology that tied into to the show about the Dharma Initiative was just so impressive and so cool. I, the, I think the, the, one of the, the things that, that shaped me as a fan was I saw the Blair Witch Project the day it came out, I was I, me and my my girlfriend, who's now my wife. We were in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, this would have been this would have been 1998, uh, and uh, so very not pre-internet, but early, early internet. Still like the free AOL disc dial-up 
internet. And uh, uh, we went, we didn't, we'd never heard of the Blair Witch Project. We walked into this indie theater in, in Cincinnati, Ohio. And we were like, this looks like an interesting movie. And we sat and watched it and we were like freaked out. Right. I mean, it was like the first found footage film. People don't realize like, the younger people don't realize how 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 crazy that was. Right. And and we yep. we walked out. I mean, as Christians, we were like praying for these people and like interceding for them. <laughs> like, you know, like it was it was uh, it was like, like it really crazy. happened. This thing yeah, really right. happened. These people yeah. are still missing. <laughs> yeah. Father, help help us, uh, you know, uh, protect these people. We're praying. <laughs> so we walked out like debating was that real or wasn't that real? And, and we're like, it can't be real. They wouldn't, they couldn't release that, but it didn't seem scripted. And the way they shot it, like they, they, they had us. Right. So, so we said, you know what, we're going to go to the great arbiter of truth, which is the internet. And so, because at that point people still thought the internet was true. So, uh, (laughs) so, so we went and, and I started looking all this stuff up and, and guess what? Like, what did I find? I found, news stories about these teens that were missing and and uh news articles from newspapers and and all this extra content that that I'm like see it's real and for 2 weeks the world believed it was real until they came out in the vi- uh, MTV Video Music Awards uh and they revealed that it was it was all sort of a, a swerve but but like to me I'm like wow you can do that you can use the internet to be able to put to, to shoot these extra videos and and they the way they the way they invested even just to I mean you know like just to do a fake news video that takes time and money and effort and a crew and the whole thing right and and it wasn't easy back then to do any of that stuff uh, they didn't have cell phones they didn't have any of these you know the iPhones and things like that to do it but they did it and and you know it it created this tremendous mythology uh, uh, that, that, that they benefited from. And so, uh, you know, and then, you know, then you, you, you had the law situation that, that, that really developed it even more. And then one of my favorite shows of, I don't even remember when this was because all time and space stopped in COVID, but like Watchmen, I don't know if you watch Watchmen, uh, Watchmen was, was tremendous. Watchmen's Damon Lindelof, Right, uh, the showrunner, I'm a big Damon Lindelof fan, who was also co-showrunner of Lost. Right, sort of the protege of J.J. Abrams. He he show, uh, ran the show for for Watchmen. And what's amazing about Watchmen was they, you know, in Watchmen, they had, there was a, a FBI agent named Petey who was tasked with finding out more about you know these vigilantes uh, a, a, through the HBO website, the Watchmen website. They had Petypedia which was all of his case files that you could follow. And after every episode, you could go and f- read uh, uh, the Tulsa Times newspaper that had, you know, that, that had uh, these news articles. You could read police reports and medical reports and I- internal memorandums of the FBI that between episodes just gave you more information. Right. And what's crazy is if, if you if you watch the show, Jimmy, you remember in, in, in the very first episode, there's a character named Lube Man. Right, that covers himself in lube and slips through the sewer, and, and they never catch Lube Man. Right, if you if you followed Petapedia throughout the entire series, what you find out at the very end is that Petey, the FBI agent, was actually Lube Man the entire time. Really? Uh, really? Yeah. 
It's crazy. And you only found that out online following PDPedia because he ends up on, he gets arrested, right? And, but that's the reveal then. Uh, and they have to close his case file down and they put out a, a like a, a press release about it and the whole thing. Super, super cool stuff, right? So I, I love that stuff. And as a fan, why wouldn't you love that stuff? And if fans love that stuff, as a creator, why don't why wouldn't you want to give the fans that stuff? Uh, the only the only reasoning is that one, you either have this like selfishly myopic view of your own artistic integrity, right, and you're a little too fancy pants, or you're intimidated by it because you say, I don't know how to do that stuff. I don't know how to do a podcast. I don't know how to shoot these extra videos. I don't know how to like you know do it. And you're intimidated by it because you just have a very specific view of yourself. And, 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 and both I think are a shame, but that's the cool thing about today's market is we have, you know, these boxes in our pocket that shoot 4k resolution. We, we can, we can shoot podcasts and create content so easily now and distribute it through social media and distribute it through the, the, the parting of the Red Sea miracle. That is the internet like that, you know, everything is figure outable. YouTube is the greatest educational tool on the planet. If you need to learn how to, how to change the carburetor in 1987 Volvo, like I'm, I'm sure there's a YouTube video about it, right? So like you can go to G-O-O-G-L-E.com and say, how do I make a podcast? And there's going to be 700 articles that'll lead you through it. The intimidation factor shouldn't be there uh, in today's market. But but I think typically that is 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 a big factor. That's even a bigger factor than people being snooty about it is they, they're self-defeating in the approach. Okay, well, let me push back just a little bit on that because maybe maybe the insecurity comes from this place, right? Like I hear what you're saying, but it actually feels overwhelming because I don't know if I have a universe in me yet. I'm just trying to write this film, right? Like just this film in front of me. I just want to tell the story of the time that I went on a whitewater rafting trip with my friends in college and we, uh, the boat sank and we were stuck in the wilderness and we almost died. And I think it would make a great film. I just want to make that. And I hear you talk about all this universe expanding, and that's what intimidates me. So how, how, help me? I, I don't. Uh, how do, how can I see what I perceive as my little film that I just want to tell? This little slice of story, this little moment in time. How I feel intimidated at the idea that I somehow need to figure out how to make that exploitable in more ways than just the way I want to simply tell it. Sure. And, and, but here's, here's the, here's the fact of the matter is, is, and you know, as well as I do in today's market, if you approach just that story, the way you're talking about odds are you're never going to get the opportunity to tell that story because the practical aspect is if you want to make that movie, you're either going to have to sell it off for acquisition, right? Sell the script to somebody, or you're going to have to produce it independently, which means you're going to have to go to an investor uh, and have somebody uh, finance it, right? Um, or potentially you could go to Kickstarter, right? And the thing, you know, the thing about Kickstarter, 98% of the movies on Kickstarter don't get funded. Um, on average, the ones that do get funded get funded on an average of $12,000, um, which, listen, if you raise $12,000 to make your movie, Mazel tov, that's amazing. I'm going to give you a $12,000 high five and root for you and pray for your success. But ultimately, we have to, to make this a career, we have to move beyond the $12,000 movie, right? So, so now we're talking about the acquisition or the investment. In today's market, it's very difficult 
to be able to get that is more difficult than ever before for independent creators to get a private equity investment into their film. And it's because the market shifted. It's riskier now than ever before uh, to, 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 uh, to release a movie into the market because there's so much stuff being pumped into the market. It's oversaturated. It's commoditized. And so, so right now, if you release a movie into the market, you, you, uh, you're not just competing with the other movies in the market. You're competing with other movies in the market and every movie ever made and all the video games and all the, the books and all the other things that are dividing people's attention. And I mean, you, you put something on Netflix, like it just gets lost in the ether. Right. And that's if you can get it, even get it on Netflix. Right. And so, and so now investors are looking at that and say, wait a minute. Okay. How, like, you know, before, like 20 years ago, you put a film out, like, you know, you had some space to, to for people to notice you now with, you know, they're with Netflix saying, Hey, they're going to, they're going to be releasing 71 movies in 2021. And like, you know, it, it's just, it's incredible. The amount of contents being produced. So now investors are looking at that and saying, Oh, I don't know. The only way to compete against that is PNA. And if you look at, if you track PNA, now we're getting sort of like into deep cut filmmaker land here. But if, if you track the P, like what's happening with PNA, it's absolutely astounding. Where used to be the rule of thumb was you looked at the production budget uh, of a film and you put an equal amount into the PNA, right? And so, uh, so if a $5 million film, we'll, we'll spend $5 million to market it. In today's, in today's market, Everything is so oversaturated with with content. Now the PA is ballooning to to even just to be a blip in the radar. You have to spend so much money, and that changes your break even. So Steven Soderbergh had this really interesting article recently where he talked about the death of the independent film industry. And Steven Soderbergh, when Steven Soderbergh is talking about the death of independent films, it's a big deal because this dude, all this dude does is shoot independent films, micro budget, no budget, low budget, uh, shoestring budget film, digital, iPhone, he shoots it all, right? Uh, he makes studio movies, obviously. Um, he says the reason independent films aren't going to last is that the PNA is getting out of control. And the reason PNA is getting out of control is because of the oversaturation of the market. So he says, now let's say you, you take a $5 million movie. And he said, in today's market, you have to spend at least $35 million of domestic PNA and $35 million of international PA just to be a blip on the radar, which is $70 million of PA just to be a blip. Let not even talking about really competing, but you're spending $70 million as, as th- just the cost of entry into today's market. So who's bearing that cost? Well, that's that cost is bared by the distributor, right? It's borne by the distributor. So, but then the distributor is splitting every dollar with the exhibitor. So all of a sudden, now I know I'm, I'm doing math for the audience, and they're like these creatives are, are shaking their fist at, the, at, <laughs> yeah, at this point. Yeah. But, they, 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 they all just jumped over to uh, to script notes after you start talking. Yeah, exactly. Math. Exactly. <laughs> so think about this. So you have you have you have seventy million dollars of of, of P and A paid by the distributor, a five million dollar production budget. So seventy million dollars has to be paid back in order uh, in order for this distributor to get paid back. This distributor splits every dollar with the with the exhibitor which means you have to make $140 million at the box office for that distributor to make that $70 million back because every dollar split in half and split with the exhibitor. Add in the add in the $5 million production budget, all of a sudden a $5 million film has $145 million break-even, which is crazy just to be a blip in the radar. So this is how it affects the independent creator is, is independent creator goes to 
the businessman or the businesswoman that they need to invest, right? And a lot of times that's not savvy entertainment people. That's like the rich orthodontist down the street that, you know, that, that you know, you're like, hey, can you give me some money? And, and so all of a sudden you have to convince that investor, say, if you give me $5 million of your money to make my movie, all we have to do is make $145 million at the box office. And guess what? You get all your money back. That makes zero sense. And all of a sudden, the risk increases for the investor. The investor gets nervous, backs away. It's hard to be able to pull that money now, right? And so what's the alternative? Well, I won't spend as much in PA. Well, what's the problem with that? If you spend the, if you don't spend enough on PA, now people really aren't going to know that you're here. Right. So and now, you know, now you're seeing things like, guess what happened to the independent film market in during COVID? We lost it. We lost it because the lifeblood of independent film is what are our, our, our film festivals for exposure and things like that. Like they all went away and they did some online stuff, but, but they really went away. Uh, theater shut down. Right. And so now investors are saying, wait a minute, like even if even pre-COVID, I was kind of interested. What happens when when COVID-24 comes? And shuts everything down when this film is going to be released. Like I could lose my shirt, right? Like what? Like what do we do here? And so now the risk has increased more and more and more and more. Now we have to figure out as independent creators new ways to hedge the investment, right? And so all of a sudden now, like I, I had an investor tell me recently, he said, "Houston, never, never bring me one project. Always bring me ten projects." He said, "I would much rather invest into a slate than a single project because because I know out of ten, Three are going to lose money. Three may break even, but you know, or four may break even, right? Uh, but I'm just kind of hoping and praying that two or three will pop off, and and they will overperform to the to the point that it subsidizes the losses of the rest. It's a resource allocation model that that investors are looking at now, and so and so now all of a sudden, uh, when you bring your single script to an investor, that's hard. You say, I just want to tell the thing that my road trip story. I know that's what you want to do. Whether you're going to be able to is going to be a different story. So even if you don't want to lean into transmedia for your own artistic fan base purposes, like I'll, you're going to have to figure out how to position this film in a way that speaks to investors if you want to be in the game. Or or they say, I don't want to do in, uh, independent film investment. I'm going to go sell this thing to Netflix. I'm going to go sell this to Amazon. I'm going to go sell it to, to you know MGM and Warner Brothers. Well, if you look at what's being optioned now and the way the, the spec market is, is if you don't have pre-awareness in the marketplace, if you don't have a fan base, if people don't know you or they don't know your IP, the odds of, of, of getting that script sold, unless you're like number one on the blacklist or top five on the blacklist, almost zero. It's very, very difficult to, to do that. It's all based on, on branded IP and, and pre-awareness of the market, right? So what they'll tell you, and you know this, Jimmy, is, is let's say they love your script and they, they'll say, Jimmy, this is what you need to do. You need to go back and you need to find an attachment. And they'll, they'll send you off to say, get an actor, get an actress, get, get, a, get, get, a, get a producer, writer, director, somebody that can that can that can move the needle because they're trying to they're trying to mitigate the risk and trying to establish some pre-awareness. Even if your story doesn't have pre-awareness, the attachment has pre-awareness. Jimmy, how tough is that attachment game in Hollywood to get meaningful <laughs> attachments? I'm not right. talking about like 
that like right. the supporting character on three episodes of the 70s show 15 years ago. Right, right, I'm talking right. about like getting getting an A list or a B list or a, you know people that can move the, the needle is so hard. Yeah. Like that's that that's hard, right? If you can get the rock to attach to your script, don't even think about transmedia. Just go off and make a right. rock movie. Like it's yeah. I give you permission to do You're whatever you want. Whole different conversation. Yeah. Right. But like, but 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 how do you do that? Like, and this these are the things that like film school doesn't prepare you for, right? These are the, the traps that you that you don't, you're like, oh, wait a minute, how am I supposed to do that? But here's the thing: the two most option things right now in Hollywood, podcasts and short stories on Wattpad. There'd be an option like crazy because the the studios are seeing the audience be built and they can look at the analytics and now if you approach if you approach a studio with something that has 20,000 people subscribing to the podcast you have 100,000 people that read the short story on Wattpad now they're looking at that as pre-awareness right and you don't it used to be it just had to be based on a book right um but 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 now if you can establish some audience early on uh, using some digital mediums, uh, then you bring them. You've established pre-awareness, and it's just the same as selling a book. I had a buddy who who uh, went to Paramount, pitched a script to Paramount, um, and they said, we love it, but we don't know who you are, and uh, it, you, the, the script isn't branded LIP. It's too risky. We can't make it. And they said, what we want you to do is we want you to go turn this into a comic book. And if you can sell 10,000 copies of the comic book, guess what I'll do? We'll make your movie. Right. So he walks out thinking, well, I guess that's good in a way. But guess what? He's a screenwriter. He doesn't know how to make a comic book. Right. So what does he do? He sits down, goes to G-O-O-G-L-E.com and types in, how do I make a comic book? And started taking the 7 to 12 to 17 to 72 hours reading every article about how to make a comic book. He figured out how, uh, how uh, where the artist hung out online. He connected with an artist through Fiverr, ended up doing like some stuff with him. He's got this a guy in Estonia. And, it, and it, he ended up figuring out how to collaborate and put an issue of a comic together that he put out independently on Amazon. He sold enough of that comic book to then roll it into a second issue and then a third issue. And then all of a sudden, a publisher came and picked it up for if issue four, right? And then they're doing issue five. They're putting it together for a trade paperback. And he's just now getting to the point where he's going to have the 10,000 mark checked off. Wow. Wow. And guess what he's going to do? He's going to go back to Paramount and say, now I want you to make my movie. So what they were doing is they weren't telling him, we're, we're not judging the quality of the story. We're judging the risk of the project. And we want you to go establish pre-awareness of the market in a different medium. And he was willing to go do that. But here's the, here's the punchline, Jimmy, is he said, he says, Houston, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to make my movie with Paramount, but I'm going to keep doing my comic book. because Why? Because I have fans that love the comic book and it's another source of revenue for me. Right. And here's, here's another reason. I just want to overwhelm you with reasons, Jimmy is, is, as a, I'm going to be, I'm going to be your, I'm going to be your fake lawyer for a second. If, if you create, if you just write something as a script and it's just a script and you go and you sell it to a studio, guess what? That studio swoops down with its giant arms and it's going to be taking every right and every medium to that IP here forever to ever created forever, right? Until Jesus comes back. And then after that too. Right. And like they take everything and control everything. And more than likely, you're going to get cut out. 
right? Now, hopefully you can do take that check and flip it into something else, but that's the game. So if you have a passion project that you don't want to walk away from, and you don't want it to be controlled, here's, here's what you do. If you can establish that IP in the market, let's just say you self-publish it as a book. When you go to then turn that into a movie, guess what? The studios do a different deal with you. They don't do wholesale acquisition. They license the rights to adapt that book into a movie, which means they they take the film and television rights for the adaptation, but you maintain all the ancillary rights to all the other mediums, video games, music, you know, uh, all you know, publishing rights, the whole thing, which in success of the movie, all those other things can become very meaningful, uh, financially meaningful, right? And very yeah, valuable. Plus it was, it was licensed. So you get a check for the rest of your life. hundred percent. You, sh- you should never, ever, 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 even if you never do transmedia, you should never, ever, ever just go sell a script to a studio before you at least publish it as a book, right? It, get it into the marketplace in some way and, and because that's just smart business. Now, here's, here's the trick. It doesn't have to be a book. You establish it as a podcast, right? It's the same thing. You establish it as a short story, same thing, right? But all of a sudden, if you attack the market, with a little bit of an ecosystem to generate that, to, to generate the fan base. And you do uh, a series of TikTok videos that, that tell a story, you do a web series, you do a, you do a short stories on Wattpad, you do a podcast and you figure out how to tactically uh, migrate the audience back and forth and get your TikTok people to, to go to the podcast, get the podcast people to go check out the, the web series. And then you aggregate that audience. When, one, you'll actually, you now have a puncher's chance to at least get a meeting. Whereas if you didn't have any pre-awareness, uh, pre-awareness before, you're probably not going to get the meeting. Even if you'd have the character uh, piece or the, 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 you know, your, your, uh, your coming of age film that you want to do, you probably won't even get a meeting unless you have an agent, then how do you get an agent? It's the whole game, right? You, you know, the game, it's just like, it's, 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 it's like, it feels like dead end after dead end after dead end. Here's the amazing thing. This is why I get super excited about it. This is why I come off as a crazy Pentecostal preacher is because <laughs> now nobody can keep you out. It, you, We now, through the miracle that's the internet and all the digital platforms and all the tools that we have at our disposal, you could attack the market, go directly to the consumer, directly to the audience. And if you build the audience yourself, they, they, they can't keep you out of the market. They like they can't keep you out because of your race. They can't keep you out because of your gender. They can't keep you out uh, because of your 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 religious observations. Well, they can't keep you out based on where you live. Like you, like a kid in Iowa twenty years ago couldn't break into the industry. Guess what? A kid in Iowa, if he pop, if if, if he pops a million subscribers on 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 TikTok and has a podcast that pops off with two hundred thousand subscribers, guess what? He they're now coming to him. Right, and that wasn't that wasn't possible. It wasn't yeah. even possible. And, and the young people don't understand this, Jimmy. Like we're old enough to have seen both sides, right? Like, and 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 so my my concern now is that we've been in the internet age so long that we don't recognize the 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 opportunity that's in front of us and how to leverage it. I mean, the fact that. We have the world's information in our pocket at all the time. And we have the, like the, I got the new iPhone, right? The camera on this iPhone is mind bogglingly good, right? And, and the fact that, that we use it just to read about politics on Twitter is, is a tragedy. <laughs> like it's tragic, right? And hopefully they use it oh, to, to well, that's listen tragic. to the podcast. That's- 
Well, that's that's true. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's just listening. Reading Twitter is just tragic in and in, in and of itself. In and of itself, but, right? I know what you're exactly. <laughs> you guess what I'm saying? It's just like you know. But 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 you know, if if we attack the market, and here here's an interesting story for you, is and this is how it impacts. There was I worked with a uh, this guy who was he was producing a documentary, and um, that was close to his heart. He wanted to go back and 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 produce a documentary back into the ghetto that he grew up in Chicago. He grew up in one of the worst ghettos in the country, uh, a place called Cabrini Green. And it, it ends up that was actually if you ever watched the uh, like the, the original Candyman films, it was set in Cabrini Green. Right, Cabrini Green is just a, was traditionally a very bad place. Uh, he grew up there. And they've since bulldozed it and changed it. But there's another housing project, government housing projects there today. And so he wants to go. He wanted to go shoot a documentary on a kid who's growing up in that government housing, uh, uh, you know, uh, facility. And um, and it was like sort of this meta concept of there's a kid growing up in that government housing unit that wanted to get out and he had a, he had a cell phone and he, that kid was shooting a documentary about his life. And this guy wanted to go shoot a documentary about the kid shooting the documentary. Right. And so it was sort of this weird meta concept. Right. And so, but what, like what, what was hard for him? Well, the financing of it, he was like, you know, I got, you know, I, I got, I need a crew. I need to, you know, at least feed my people. Right. And things like that. And, and he, he's, he said, how do I use transmedia to, 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 to make this more palatable to investors because I keep going to investors and they say, there's no market for, for, for documentary films, unless you pop something like the tiger King or something like that, or a true crime documentary on, on Netflix, like the documentary space is very difficult to monetize. And uh, now streaming, I think has done wonders for documentary films and it's better than it was before, but it's still like not a super great investment for investors traditionally. Right. Uh, so he said, he said, what do I do? I said, well, let's, let's use the wisdom of Marvel. And he said, he said, well, I don't want to t- tell anything about superheroes. Like that, like that's, you know, I'm telling a, a gritty inner city documentary, Houston, like, don't you get it? I said, yeah, yeah. But there's wisdom there and there's principles that Marvel taps into. Right. And, and if, if you look up in the sky and you see a 777 flying through the air, Right. That 777 is using the law of lift to supersede the law of gravity. And and that's how airplanes fly. Right. Law of gravity keeps you on the ground. But the law of lift supersedes that. And that's how an airplane flies. So if you look at that and you say, wow, that's amazing. I can't do that because I don't have, you know, a hundred million dollars to build a jet. Right. No, you don't need to, because if you fold a piece of paper in a very specific way, and you throw it across the room, guess what? That, that little paper airplane uses the law of lift to supersede the law of gravity in the exact same way as that big jet. Now, are there differences? Yes. Like, you know, how many people can ride on it? How far it will go? Like there's differences, but the principles are the same. And if you could identify the principles, now we can kind of scale it to where you are. And I said, what you need is a story world. Because Marvel has a story world, Lord of the Rings has a story world, Star Wars has a story world, and that's and 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 that's a starting point. So so what's the world of the story? Where what's the that sort of that narrative universe that you want to focus on? It's this government housing you know uh, place, right? And so it's the project. And so I said, okay, let's let's tell let's build a brand around this place. Why do you want to tell this kid's story? He said, the reason I want to tell this kid's story is, is I want people to show, see, people drive past this place and they, and they presume 
that no one special lives there, right? And I want to show people that some of the most amazing people you'll ever meet in life, some most talented, interesting people live in these terrible places, right? And they're forgotten about. No one hears their stories. And I want to raise awareness for that. I said, that is awesome, dude. That's such a meaningful message. I love it. I'm rooting for you. So now let's figure out not how to tell one story. Let's tell lots of different stories about different people in this place. He said, well, now I'm going to have to make six documentary movies. I said, no, no, no. I said, like, let's, we'll get to that later. But like, who are some other interesting people? And he said, well, there's, there's, there's an old uh, veteran who lives there. He was, I think it was a Korean war veteran or maybe a Vietnam veteran. I can't remember. He was a purple heart recipient, right? And he has these amazing war stories, right? But now he's wasting away uh, uh, in, in this government housing project and, and it's tragic. He said, there's two little girls who are like 11 years old who, uh, who are identical twins who always rap on the street corner. Right. And, and, and they wrap for money and they, and they use that money to go buy a hamburger so they can split and eat every day. Right. This is a tremendous story. There's there's this old lady who this, this old like 90 year old lady that that makes food for as many people as she can. She stays busy by just making as many people food as possible. And she delivers it to them from door to door, the people that can't get out. But what's the crazy thing about this lady is that is she 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 has a, a, a like a, a potty mouth like a sailor. She curses the entire time. And whenever she delivers your, your food, she uh, she delivers your food and she tells you a dirty joke, like make a grown man blush dirty joke. Right. And so. <laughs> oh, I like this. Me, lady. I like this lady. I like <laughs> yeah, there we go. Right. <laughs> so so he's telling me these stories. I said, dude, like, OK, this is fantastic. So so we we kind of sketched out some ideas and, and I said, OK, you know. Can we produce the music? of those little girls and actually get them in a mood. And he's like, I don't know how to produce, produce music. I said, do you know anybody that produces music? Well, I think like my brother-in-law like does them. Okay, great. C- call that collaboration and call him and see if we, we can do something. Uh, let, let's, let's publish sh- uh, uh, an anthology of short stories from the veteran and his, his war stories. We can turn them into short stories and, and put it in a book that we can put on Amazon. Let's have a cookbook for the old lady. And on one on one page you have the recipe, and on the other page you have the dirty joke, right? <laughs> uh, and then and then you have the documentary uh, as well. And that, but see, then you knit them all together. And so in the documentary, you you tactically make sure that you show all these people that live in this in this housing unit uh, in the and and like have these girls reference some of these other characters in, in, in their songs. Make sure that they that in, in the cookbook you 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 somehow reference some of the other characters and and, and things like that. And all of a sudden, guess what? You package this for an investor, you take it to the investor and say, I don't want you to, to, I don't want you to invest into a documentary. I want you to invest into a brand. And it's a brand that's rooted in this meaningful purpose. And it's going to have a variety of ways to drive revenue and build audience. I said, and, and so, so guess what? That investor can make money off the cookbook, making money off the book of short stories, and make money off the music. And so even if the documentary doesn't make any money at all, which it probably won't because that's the way a documentary is, the success of the other things can potentially subsidize the loss created by the documentary, or potentially the documentary does get picked up by Netflix and then raises awareness for the other products. Right, which gives and all of a sudden all this things works works together as an ecosystem, 
And it uses the same wisdom of Star Wars, the same principles of Marvel. It has the same story world approach as Lord of the Rings, but it's set, it's set right it's still within his own, you know, his own idea and his own project. And it completely transforms it to something else, right? That's empowering to a creator. That is, imp- and listen, getting to the Christian angle of it, like the, Paul says, we need to become all things to all people, right? Uh, my my thesis talking to the church is you shouldn't just become all things to all people. Your entertainment needs to become all things to all people. Because if if we're doing our job and we're embedding our heart and our principles and our worldview into the things that we create, guess what? In today's commoditized market, not everybody does everything. Not everybody watches documentary films. But the message that you put in your documentary film, my nephew that all he does is play video games 12 hours a day, right? Shouldn't he hear that message too? If that message actually is meaningful to you and it's close to your heart and as part of your Christian worldview, and, and, and we need to preach the gospel to, you know, to the ends of the earth and become all things to all people, why would you want to limit it? To, to to just people that watch documentaries. No, no, no. Now we start to view transmedia in a different lens and super stories at different lens as an engine to fuel the good news into a, as many different avenues and modalities and, and, and into as many people as we can because the entertainment needs to become all things, all people, just like we need to become all things, all people. Well, this has been fantastic. I, I feel like um, we got a little bit of a master class uh, today for everyone who, who was listening. Houston, it's always so much fun just to, to see your passion about these uh, about this. And because I know you actually approach this uh, as a, from the heart of a storyteller. And that's sure. what's kind of fun is that is that um, I think when people maybe maybe at first hear the idea of transmedia or superstory, it almost feels like a marketing ploy. It, does, it almost right. feels like a, a sale. Okay. This is just a set. And I think for a lot of creatives that might maybe turn them off, but, right. but even right there, you're, you're the way you laid, laid out that last example with the documentary just really shows we're not, this isn't marketing. I mean, it's marketing, not. marketing can certainly exploit it as well. Yes. But, but what you're talking about is story. And and yes. look, we, we have to still tell a great story. It, it all comes down to whether or not we still execute the story at the highest possible level. It has to be a good story well told. Yes. Um, we you can't, you know, you can't just expect all this stuff to happen uh without that central story being great. You, right. you still have to follow the principles of what it means to make a great story. But I what I hear you saying is look, your story has stories in it that can still yes. be told and still be um and I love that. So thank you. This was this was um this was really fantastic. I love it. And I'm looking forward to kind of jumping in with uh with the the act one uh crew, you know, as soon as we can and and actually dive into a lot. There's so much practical strategy involved. So looking for the next time that I can kind of get in with those classes and, and, and those creators and, uh, you know, sort of build, help build that skill set. Houston, I'd love to, um, close uh, out our time by praying for you. Is that okay? hundred percent. Yep. I love it. Heavenly father, this, thank you so much for this time. And thank you so much for Houston. It's just so much fun to hear his passion and his heart for for great stories and great storytelling and for, and for storytellers. 
God, I, I, I love what you're doing uh, in and through Houston. We just pray a blessing on him, pray, pray a, a blessing on his, on his family. And he's got a new little one. Just pray. Uh, thank you for that new little one, a blessing on him and his wife uh, and their new, uh, where they live now and, um, and the recent move. And uh, God, just um, thank you for all the opportunities you're given. We, God, we just pray that you'd give him more opportunities uh, to be able to uh, help help filmmakers, help storytellers um, in crafting their stories uh, to the best of their ability. And um, we just um, thank you for this time. Thank you for uh, just this opportunity. And we pray this in Jesus' name and your promises we stand. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Act One Podcast. Celebrating over 20 years as the premier training program for Christians in Hollywood, Act One is a Christian community of entertainment industry professionals who train and equip storytellers to create works of truth, goodness, and beauty. The Act One program is a division of Master Media International. To financially support the mission of Act One or to learn more about our programs, visit us online at actoneprogram.com. And to learn more about the work of Master Media, go to mastermedia.com.